You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. My guest today is Chloe Valdry. Chloe is a writer, entrepreneur, and founder of The Theory of Enchantment. Chloe has lectured in universities across America, including Harvard and Georgetown. Her work has been covered in Psychology Today, and her writings have appeared in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. Chloe, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Such a pleasure. So I think that a great place to kick this off would be, I watched um, an introduction video to you, and I saw that you're a fan of the writer Robert Greene. Robert uh, has yes. uh, been on the show twice. So I would love to um, just ask you, what is it about Robert's work which has resonated right. with you? Well, I think 48 Laws of Power and also his other, some of his other books have been intriguing to me. I was introduced to 48 Laws of Power perhaps five years ago, maybe. And just the idea of curating a whole host of different experiences from across time and space is something, is a process that I think resonates with me and how I view the world and, and how I sort of um, assess different trends in the world by looking at different um, different actions or different events that have taken place throughout history. So I think that was very intriguing. And that book was the first kind of book that I had read that um, really modeled that approach. Yes, yeah, he's such a, an interesting thinker. I'm a, I'm a huge, huge fan of Roberts. Um, so I figured that um, like today, we're probably just going to just jump in the deep end with a lot of stuff. Okay. Um, so I figured like a good place to start, this would be that over here in the UK, where I am, very recently, there was a race report which came out. Now, this race report has, I'm not sure if you've seen this, but it's generated a lot of controversy over here. So basically, okay. this was a, a government um, report. And the report basically said that in the UK, there was no evidence of systemic racism. Okay. Um, so this is obviously, you know, the left have thought that the right have kind of sat in glee. So it's, it's a bit, just a, a bit of a mess. Um, so I just figured that uh, just in my lifetime anyway, you know, I'm 25 now. So it seems like race is now at the forefront of a conversation at a way in which I've never seen it before. Um, so I'd love to turn this back yeah. to you. Obviously, Biden and Kamala have now come into America. So I'd love to know just in the US, where is the conversation currently at in regards to race? Well, this is a difficult question to answer because it depends on what you mean by the US, right? Um, it, from a political perspective, certainly a lot of the political rhetoric that plays out on you know, the, the mainstream news stations uh, center a focus on race, whether that's uh, MSNBC or Fox News or CNN, um, to the extent that they speak about uh, social justice, the president and the vice president also speak about race. I'm not sure though, if race is actually in the forefront of the minds of the American people 
as much as uh, you know, social media platforms like Twitter mm-hmm. and uh, Facebook would have us believe. So it really depends upon what America, what you mean by America, what America you're referring to, um, to, to be able to, for me to more uh, clearly answer that question, if that makes sense. Um, I think that it's become hyperinflated in the sense of, uh, you know, things like social media. Like, is, is Twitter dominated by, by these conversations? Is that like an echo chamber for these things? It really depends because I think Twitter, Twitter is not sort of, you know, I have a love-hate relationship with Twitter. I'm a semi-active user of Twitter. But mm. Twitter is not exists or emerge out of a vacuum. Um, I think that if you want to curate a certain kind of feeling or environment on Twitter that reflects conversations constantly happening about race, you can do that. If you want to curate a totally different experience on Twitter by following and engaging with certain people who are talking about other conversations, like maybe entrepreneurship or, you know, Mm. technology, then your Twitter feed will uh will reflect that and your trends on your twitter feed what's trending on your twitter feed will also reflect that so i think the algorithm is set up to be uh interdependent between the user and the actual platform so the echo chambers are products yes of twitter but also of people who are behaving and acting in a certain way is the hashtags is that connected to what you view i i actually didn't know that yeah it is i, is it? I definitely fact check me on that but yeah. but it's definitely partially related to what you are already attracted to and what you're already gravitating towards i think you're less likely to i think like if you're interested in you know for example tech you're more likely to see trending topics about technology mm. and if you like put out if you act in such a way that makes it obvious that you're interested in tech on Twitter. I think that your what is trending will reflect that interest. That's really interesting. I, I actually didn't know that. Maybe it's my own fault. Maybe it's my own doing for that is certainly on. my impression on Twitter at least. Again, fact check me. It could be anecdotal. Sure, sure. Okay. So I'll I'll come back to um the racism. I'll 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 put a side note to to curate my Twitter <laughs> in a better in a better way. So Obviously, over here, there was that report which um, said that in the UK, there was they, they found no evidence of systemic racism. I, I can't say whether that's, that's true or not. I, I genuinely I have no idea. This was our report found it. It was very controversial over here. Um, it seems to me like looking as a kind of out pillar across the ocean that in the US, there seems to be strong suggestions that the u.s is systemically racist mm-hmm. um this is just what i read on my 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 twitter feed anyway sure. <laughs> but i would have to do you think is that true or is it a complicated issue where, where do you kind of stand on? yeah i i think it's a complicated issue i think we're talking about like when i think of systemic racism i think of slavery i think mm-hmm. of jim crow um you know which are no longer which, the law of the land However, at the same time, I recognize that while there may not be, that may not be the law of the land, there are ways in which certain policies may play themselves out, even inadvertently or unwittingly, that do end up creating um, disadvantages a- along racial lines. I was just reading this really interesting piece in the New Yorker about um, a a city in or an area in Brooklyn called Brownsville 
which is predominantly African-American, which has to deal with, on the one hand, a lot of, uh, has had to deal with a lot of violence, a lot of murders coming from gang wars. And on the other hand, has had to also deal with over-policing. And the piece was about how do you craft uh, the proper approach or the balance between you know, developing a healthy relationship between the police and the community that the police serve. It argued that they have to have the right person at the top of the precinct in order to successfully do community policing. If you have someone who is at the top who really doesn't care about the people in the community, um, then they can be more likely to uh, promote punitive responses uh, which actually might not actually deter anything as opposed to allowing the community to create its own sort of interim. Um, that's like the first go-to before you call the police. So in this particular case, there's a group of leaders, I, I'm gonna forget the name of the organization, but they're basically like, they interfere whenever a skirmish is about to become violent, right? And so the idea is that you allow that group to interfere first, so you don't have to call the police. And this article was arguing very persuasively that uh, when, the, when the leadership in the police department actually allowed for that to happen, less murders happened in the long run, less violence happened in the long run, as opposed to a quota-based system where the police are basically, um, it's sort of like a, a for-profit policing model where police, have, police officers have to make their quotas, police officers have to arrest a certain amount of people by a certain day. There's obviously the intersection wow. of race and class here. The, uh, I think a lot of this has to do more with class often than with race. Um, you know, if budgets aren't uh, huge in, in police precincts, then they may be driven to, you know, try to arrest, try to, try to make a certain amount, number of arrests by a certain uh, date. And that will obviously cause issues if no one's really doing anything in a certain, you know, district. If people are just smoking weed or just, you know, hanging out and, and drinking alcohol, there can be a lot of over-policing, police harassment that can occur because what's driving that are fundamentally a, a combination of the wrong person in the leadership position and um, budgetary issues. So that's systemic, right? That's mm. institutional, but it's, it's not clear that race is necessarily the primary uh, driving factor within these systemic problems. And I think that we could actually solve perhaps some of these problems more easily if we were willing to expand our vocabulary about what is what are the factors that are possibly actually affecting um, given given uh, challenges in given districts. I find it crazy that the police have kind of like a quota to of people to arrest, kind of like a car salesman trying to sell cars for the end of the yeah, month. I find that so crazy. So to be sure, the I should I should be fair here and say that the police officers in question who were asked about this denied that this was actually uh, a fact. Um, so it depends on who you ask. However, in general, we definitely know that there's in other in districts around the country that there's some cases 
uh, where there's for-profit policing just because there's not enough of a budget to actually pay police officers. And so there's a, there's a direct uh, connection between, um, ironically, between a, a police office being underfunded and over-policing, mm-hmm. um, which is also something that I think that people should talk about um, because it complicates this sort of more black and white narrative that has been uh, uh, perpetrated or promoted by the media. Another thing I'll say is that the officers in question, and I would encourage your listeners to check out this article in the New Yorker, the officers in question were also um, seen in a viral video violently. uh, um, One of the officers in question who was in the leadership position was seen violently knocking down a peaceful protester during BLM protests last year. Uh, and his deputy officer also did nothing uh, uh, in the process. I actually have that backwards. It was a deputy officer who, who violently uh, pushed this young woman, causing her to have a concussion. And then the, uh, the, leader, the, office, the officer in the leadership position didn't do anything. And so, you know, even within certain certain uh, cultures of certain police precincts there can be a culture of you know a code of silence there can be a culture of aggression uh and again punitive measures that are not not necessary and in some cases probably susceptible to legal action all of these factors are relevant when we're talking about systemic problems the problem is that you can't just reduce all of that to racism there are multiple things going on uh, in that situation, some of which I'm sure have to do with race, but it's more complicated than that. And in general, I would also encourage your listeners to watch The Wire if they haven't, because it's an excellent show. It's an old show, but it's an excellent show that I think digs deep into the complexities of policing and uh, civilian life, especially in areas where there are gang wars and there are there are like territorial disputes that have that required policing on some level right but you don't you want to calibrate so that there's no over policing um, and you also want to calibrate that so that there's no under policing as well so it's a tricky business yeah this this is a really interesting issue i, I was reading um Stephen Pinker and i was listening to him he's coming on the show soon i i'm excited to have a chat with him and he was talks about uh, someone put it to him about the idea of defunding the police Mm -hmm. and he seemed very against that idea Mm -hmm. um what do you think about the idea of kind of defunding the police well i think this is another example of um rhetoric (laughs) that that gets sort of swept up or picked up by the media Mm. um for for one reason or another i think you have to actually um you have to it's not as if there's like one giant policing institution in america policing varies and police policies vary state by state right so you can't just make a blanket statement (laughs) defund the police because it actually doesn't mean anything it is like from a from a um from a you know the difference between federal state and local perspective it doesn't actually mean anything so that's number one number two uh, as i pointed out in some cases 
the very behavior that we see from police that we want to stop from happening is actually a product of underfunded policing, right? Mm. It's a product of police precincts that are underfunded, that actually have small budgets or have very little money. And that is what drives the, a lot of these kinds of quota systems. So it's not clear to me that defunding the police, either in you know a sort of a, um, a full sort of across the board or even in specific um, examples would necessarily lead to uh, a lot, a lack of aggression or would necessarily ameliorate the negative effects of over-policing. So again, I think this is a much more complicated question and it requires understanding the context of the cities that are being discussed. Just saying defund the police doesn't doesn't solve that issue. There's also the issue that many communities, especially poor communities, uh, suffer from under policing. So a lot of a lot of times we hear in um, again rhetoric that comes uh, from mass media. We we always hear about the perils of over policing, and that's a worthy conversation to have for sure. But we never hear about the impact of under policing. There's an incredible book uh, called Ghetto Side by Jill Levy, uh, which is a report, I think she was a reporter for the Los Angeles Times, where she actually talks about how under-policing is, uh, came out of the legacy of slavery and how police officers basically wouldn't see African-American communities as worth anything. And when, when one let's say black man would kill another black man, a lot of police officers, you know, in the early days post uh, reconstruction would just see that as something that they didn't need to pay attention to or something that they didn't need to attend to or care about. And that would lead to a proliferation of the state not having the monopoly on violence, which would lead to all of these gang wars and turf wars and things of that nature. And people, you know, you're everyday citizen in that community would be hurt by that, would be impacted by that. So there's also the issue of under-policing that also has its problems. So again, this is a, this requires a calibration. Both under-policing and over-policing are issues that have to be addressed. And so this requires a calibration-oriented approach as opposed to a one-size-fits-all approach. Is a, another issue with the kind of policing in the US, th this is sort of an issue which we really don't have to, to kind of deal with here, is that obviously in the US it's kind of highly militarized. So mm. I imagine that if people, are, civilians are, say, armed with guns or if it's very prevalent there, then obviously the police are going to be kind of um, more likely essentially to shoot someone than yeah. here. Is that a problem which they do face in the US? Well, yes. I mean, we have the Second Amendment here uh, and we do have a culture of guns that is both rooted in the Second Amendment and also just like a very cowboy, cowboy-ish. Um, <laughs> and I'm not even disparaging that. That has its that has its pros and cons, but we definitely have a gun culture here um, as opposed to in other places across the pond. Um, and I'm sure it affects, you know, I haven't really done a lot of research into the militarization of the police, but I'm sure it affects, you know, the, the way that the police interact with others who are armed. Um, 
I'm sure also 9-11 affected uh, policing and the militarization of policing. And I mean, that's actually just a guess. That's just an intuitive guess. But if I were, I, I probably could find some something on that. So yeah, I think that's something that affects us in ways that probably affects you all less. Does it ever get like exhausting, like these like constant, like, political issues like i imagine someone like lebron james he must be exhausted yeah. with with all the stuff that he has going on. like does it get like exhausted like like talk like thinking about this stuff um i mean if you're asking me personally i don't really i wouldn't say exhaustion would be the term that would characterize how i feel about it it is what it is it's not like i talk about this all the time mm. or even i'm thinking about it all the time i also just see this as like you know a part of living in a democracy a part of, a part of living in a republic where you want to be a you know active citizen so you're gonna have to be you, you, i think we want to be engaged in what's going on in the country trying to figure out how to create the conditions for the flourishing of the country and for the flourishing of society. So I think that that just comes with, you know, it just comes with democracy. Yes. Yeah. But I'm not always thinking about politics though. That's, that's, that's a good point. And uh, a lesson for me from years already is I'm going to need to create my Twitter feed. Maybe I'm projected because I'm exhausted. from. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah. Your, your Twitter feed might be like just full of politics and I would never recommend that. I know, I know. Use a tip. Uh, I I love the guy. You need to unfollow Gad Sad if you follow him. He he tires my brain. Oh out. yeah, I don't know if I follow him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a good idea not to. It's a good idea. So I love Gad <laughs> as you. But uh, I would love to ask um, because we've had people on the show which have talked about the ideas of people like Ibram X Kennedy, Ibram X Kennedy, uh, yes. Robin D'Angelo. They've obviously received a lot of national attention. That's even swept this way over here. Um, what are your kind of thoughts on Kendi and D'Angelo's work related to anti-racism? You know, I uh, feel like a lot of people know my opinions on <laughs> Kendi and, and D'Angelo, but that's cool. Uh, no, I feel like, you know, they're de- they definitely had a moment uh, last year with everything that happened in the summer. And um, I think, you know, if I were to put on my generosity hat. Um, I think both Kendi and D'Angelo are genuinely coming from a place of, of genuineness and um, feel sincere in what they have offered as solutions to combating racism. I happen mm-hmm. to disagree with those solutions and think that those solutions will actually create more racism. Um, but their intentions are well-meaning, but their understanding, I think of the human condition is non-existent on some level, to be, to be frank. Um, when it comes to Kendi, he has specifically said that the heartbeat of racism is denial, which I don't actually know what that means. Um, and he, if it means that the heartbeat of racism is uh, the denial of racism, then what has occurred is sort of the elevation of racism to this sort of omnipotent um, amorphous force that is constantly here with us and will constantly be here with us. And the problem I have with that argument is that if you think about it to its logical conclusion, the person who believes that 
white supremacy is omnipotent and the, the most, let's say, primary force that affects external outcomes, and I'll talk about external outcomes in a few minutes, then one must actually believe in white supremacy mm. to make that argument. One must actually believe that somehow people with a certain skin color are omnipotent and have this incredible power to dictate uh, completely and inexorably the inner lives of all human beings on planet earth, which is just silly. Um, and, um, and quite, um, it's actually quite a, a Gnostic and religious uh, argument, um, but it's just, you would have to, you, there, there are a number of things you would also have to believe about African-American culture. If you were to believe that um, you would have to believe that we have, we are, our culture is, is not a critical part of the of the United States culture our culture has not uh, which it is uh, you would have to believe that our culture is not um a intrinsic aspect of what it means to be American which it is um and a whole host of other things you'd have to believe so I think that alone would for me discredits even Kindy's um um sort of scholarship and also the other thing that he believes um is that racism proof of racism is uh, an absence in equality of outcome. Now, there's a whole host of reasons that I could get into why yes. equality of outcome is a bad idea, but the most important one for the purposes of this conversation is that the equality of outcome actually is at odds with the concept of diversity. One community who is a um, church-going you know, uh, neighborhoody community. And by neighborhoody, I mean all the people in the neighborhood know each other. They may all go through to the same churches or to the same uh, bars or to the same uh, communal spaces. Their definition of happiness may be defined as the extent to which they are in relationship with each other. Whereas if you go to another area or another community or another culture, let's say in the Northeast in America, that culture may be defined by entrepreneurship, by the pursuit of wealth, by the pursuit of networking, right? And they will define yes. happiness according to that. So by definition, those two perspectives will lead to different outcomes, right? <laughs> In the people's lives. And so this idea of equality of outcome is in some sense conceded uh, because it fails to take into account the fact that different cultures and different communities have different ideas for what a good outcome is. Now, this is, an, um, this is a uniquely American problem, ironically. <laughs> we this is the thing that we do where we like want to make everything in our image, whether it's globally, um, you know, I no disrespect to Coca-Cola, but I'm, I'm thinking of the Coca-Cola brand when I think of this, um, but also internally. Uh, when we have these conversations about race and we define uh, racism as an absence of equality of outcome, when it seems to me that there will always be different outcomes simply by nature of the fact that there are diverse communities in America that have different ideas for what a good outcome is in the first place. So I, I said a lot about Kendi. I could go into D'Angelo, but I'll stop here if you want to. <laughs> I, 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 I love talking about this stuff. And I thought that was a very eloquent answer. I think like, like my kind of issue with all this is that it seems to be like, if everything is racist, then kind of nothing is racist. Like, right. like how can you suss out the real racists if, everyone is a racist sure yeah 
again, it's this omnipotent mm. um, flavor that is uh, intrinsic to how Kindy sees the world that is problematic. It's also very human that he sees the world in that way, right? It's very human to cling to um, because it gives one a sense of certainty on some level. Sure, sure. Um, so it's very human how he sees the world and, and how he goes about assessing the problem. But, you know, I think it's wrong. <laughs> I was I was going to ask because obviously say let's say since the death of George Floyd I mean I've I've read lots um, on my very biased Twitter feed about concepts yeah. like uh, I've seen let's say white fragility or mm-hmm. white privilege white people should speak less these concepts are, are we closer to um, racial unity than before like like is these unifying us or these dividing us like are we closer I, I don't know <laughs> well I definitely don't think that you know the the white fragility model and the how to be an anti-racist model uh, gets us closer to unity mm. um, and in general in America we're dealing with a lot of different social problems including alienation and atomization and um a lot of material inequality. And I think that once this is, again, this is like human (laughs) in any society that is dealing with this level of psychological scarcity, uh, it is natural for extremist uh, ideas to sort of start bubbling up under the surface um, because those extremist ideas are attempts to uh, again, cling to a kind of certainty, right? Believing that race is the end all be all to life uh, is a kind of, provides someone with a kind of certainty. Um, and believing that, even believing that white people are somehow some omnipotent force that can dictate the lives of others is also a kind of certainty. So it's, uh, it's strange because it's, it's uh, ascribing to a particular group of people with a particular skin color, godlike powers, um, <laughs> right? But there's a religious undertone in that that I think doesn't, it should not be overlooked. I, I would just have to pick up on something you said. So, you know, when you talk about this kind of omnipotent lens, so is this kind of uh, a person has a theory, like for instance, Kendi has this idea about race, and then let's say the coronavirus strikes, mm-hmm. and then suddenly he's going, "Oh well, COVID affects black people more, or yeah. uh, the Olympics, if you know, is disproportionately in favor of this person or this person." It's like, it's he's always looking at things through the lens of race. Is yes. that how I'm understanding it? Yeah, that's how I've read his work, and that's yes. certainly what. I've what I've seen him um, say even on Twitter essentially um, so yeah I would say race is the race is the primary motivator and factor behind all things according to his worldview for an alternative worldview I would encourage your listeners to read Albert Murray who wrote uh, the Omni-Americans uh, alternatives to the folklore of white supremacy where he critiques this this sort of approach to understanding America in in this way. Um, He argues that America is a composite, that American culture is a composite made up of Yankee culture and Native American culture and black culture um, and um, one other culture that I'm forgetting. But um, I think it's it's worth uh, reading his stuff uh, in general because he was an excellent uh, writer. Another writer which I've seen you uh, mention was Maya Angelou, and you kind of 
uh, quipped that Maya Angelou wasn't an intersectionalist in like mm. the typical um, stuff. Yeah. Could you talk about um, like why Maya Angelou's work kind of resonated with you so much? Yeah, so Maya Angelou was like the first poet I was forced to memorize in first grade <laughs> when I was six years old. And so, you know, if you were forced to memorize poetry, which is essentially uh, considering the question, what does it mean to be free? Uh, and not simply in the material sense, right? Not simply in the, um, there's someone who is holding power over you, but in the spiritual sense, like what does it mean to be internally free? Uh, or, or in the sense of consciousness, higher consciousness. If you are exposed to this at six years old, I think it might actually affect your like paradigm and the way you see the world. And Maya Angelou certainly has affected and informed the way I see the world. Um, and uh, you know, we teach some of her some of her advice, if you will, in theory of enchantment. Um, but yeah, I mean, she's one of those figures who's part of the civil rights generation, part of the Harlem Renaissance, who, who was also an artist and art is super important to me as just like a platform because we are currently living in a political and social climate where people are being reduced to caricatures and to certain labels and certain stereotypes. Whereas the task of the arts is to actually give expression to the full range of the human condition. So it's the exact opposite um, objective. Mm. So Maya Angelou figures, you know, very prominently in my <laughs> pantheon of, of influencers um, because she was, you know, a, a consummate artist and because she spoke, you know, she was very clearly African-American and very much came from African-American culture, product of African-American culture, but she also spoke about other people. And a lot of her poems, there's this one great poem where she talks about how everyone in the audience should understand that their ancestors did what they could so that they could be there. And she talks about the Irish and she talks about, you know, Chinese people and she talks about black people. And she talks about Polish people and she talks about Jewish people. She talks about the full, again, going back to that full range of the human experience. Um, and, and I think that that is a model that I hope to embody in the work that I'm doing. You mentioned kind of um, art and kind of how it's the sort of opposite of this kind of uh, political swamp, which we're kind of uh, living in. Is yeah. like art, like great literature, writing, creativity, dance, whatever it could be, is that kind of the way to, to heal my exhausted soul from politics <laughs> is that my way out? <laughs> I think so. I mean, that's certainly my approach. <laughs> um, I, I will say that, yeah, I think art is something which in contrast to science and science has its place for sure, but there's actually something about the culture that we're living in that I could argue, I don't know if I could argue persuasively, but I could argue that it's a product of our, of certain trends within Western history, uh, including scientific materialism, scientific revolution, which also paved the way for an obsession with certainty. And uh, I think it has, and I think it plays a role uh, today in our collective obsession with a need for certainty. Whereas the artistic mode of being exists in the space of creativity, which is to say that it 
is comfortable with, and you have to be as an artist, you have to be comfortable with the unknown. You have to be comfortable with going into the unknown and creating something uh, and, and believing that, you know, although the unknown may create, uh, contains negative potential, it also contains positive potential. This is something that, you know, Jordan Peterson has spoken about, Carl Jung, uh, Joseph Campbell, a lot of old time psychoanalysts. Um, but this is the artist's sort of perspective. And it, that has certainly informed the way I, uh, the, the way I see a lot of challenges, even in the political context and in the social context. And Albert Murray also talks about how African-American culture is deeply artistic in that it's a impromptu, he calls it impromptu heroism culture. An impromptu heroism culture is the capacity to understand that life brings with it very problematic things uh, and, and harmful potential, but also brings with it good potential and and African-American culture contains within it the willingness to play with the possibilities of life that are always there and that are also there. And that is the artist's way of life, I think. It's really interesting. And it kind of, um, for a bit of background information about myself, I'm a very type A personality. Yeah. I crave <laughs> certainty, like what you yeah. just described there. I mean, I tried meditation for a long time. And, you know, my my body is kind of just like a, a, a vehicle for my head. Like I kind of like live in my head all the <laughs> so time. You're very Cartesian again. Hey, yes. <laughs> These yeah. are, this, this goes back to certain elements of our culture that have given way to, and you know, I, I am one of those people who, who can bask in the beauty that the enlightenment produced, but also see some of its, uh, byproducts. And I think one of the byproducts of Descartes and the Cartesian worldview was this separation between mind and body mm. that has affected us on a, on a massive level. And we're dealing with the consequences even to this day. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting um, because I, I noticed that like, I just couldn't switch my mind off. Like I could, yeah. I could use Sam Harris's meditation app, like it wouldn't work, but like what actually did switch my mind off for like an hour was when mm-hmm. I would go to my local salsa class, and like, See? and yes. I, I, my, my mind would just stop. Dance, because you're in flow. Yes, you're in flow. You don't. You didn't need to think. Yes. So do more stuff like that. Do yes, more stuff like absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yes. I love to dance. I'm a huge dancer. Um, dance is probably my first love when it comes to art, and then music production is my second love. Um, so yeah, dance is definitely. A flow state. And then if you want to get really meta, then the question for me at least becomes, okay, so I love dance. How can I see, how can I see all of life as a dance? Right? Mm-hmm. How can I see how can I see all of life as an ebb and flow? Whether it's Twitter, you know, whether it's the political trends <laughs> that are happening or the political discourses that are occurring, how can I actually uh, be present in those spaces uh, such that I am embodying, I, I am seeing what's happening as a dance and I am embodying um, or I am inhabiting that space as a, as a dancer, which is to see that everything is actually in, in relationship with one another. I also sometimes DJ from time to time. So the task of the DJ, and this is, this is when it gets really fun. The task (laughs) of the DJ is to have different people from all walks of life, all backgrounds, all ethnicities converge 
to the dance floor. And if you take that approach in analyzing everything, right? How can I, what are, what are the common denominators between, between the Ibram Kindi-esque folks and conservatives, for example? What are the common, what are the convergence points between Black Lives Matter on the one hand and dare I say it, Fox News on the other hand, right? Because if I can find the convergence points and create a space where, the, where awareness of those convergence points can emerge, then maybe I can bypass the like cynical, uh, uh, angry outrage machine that that platforms like Twitter tend to be. And also maybe I can like pluck people from those different silos and show them actually you have a lot in common. <laughs> you have a lot more in common than you might have thought. That's that's really interesting. So it's kind of like creative outputs can be like a real unifying thing that from people that you as you say on opposite ends of the political spectrum it can bring people together exactly the one time i ever trended on twitter was when i was when i wrote this thread this very long thread explaining the common denominator between folks who are like in diversity and inclusion training will have a certain approach that's more like kindy-esque and conservatives who voted for donald trump and I like, I, cause I was reading this book called Alienated America by Timothy Carney, which studied um, like it studied the districts that voted for Trump in the primary. And mm. uh, so, so as opposed to voting for like a Mitt Romney or Ted Cruz, they voted for Trump. And he found that one of the common denominators was um, the, a lot of these districts have been plagued by alcoholism and by deaths of despair. So if your district was affected by that and you're a conservative district, you were more likely to vote for Donald Trump than a Ted Cruz or a Mitt Romney. So these were districts that were suffering from alcoholism, deaths of despair. And the reason why they were suffering from this was because they, their towns had been affected by societal dislocation. These towns were formerly towns that had like factory works and also community. The communities had been disrupted. So there was a lot of alienation and atomization. On the other hand, if you were to look at some of the slides of the diversity and inclusion trainers, that uh, are sort of would would um, would be would see Kindy as a positive. Some of the things they listed as something that they wanted to promote was interdependence, community engagement, all things that these communities that voted for Trump were suffering from a lack of, mm. right? And so so the convergence point was that a lot of these communities on seemingly different sides right um were actually craving the same things but they were making two distinctly completely different behaviors or choices and what what was fueling both of their behaviors were was a desire for the same thing it's really interesting and the on great the, convergence yeah. sorry great convergence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's interesting because i watched your uh interview with brett weinstein um, mm -hmm. he's also been on the show twice. He's a, he's a great guy. Um, yeah. I was, uh, when Brett came on, we asked him the question about how do you heal a broken society? And mm -hmm. that was a, a real interesting topic, which we discussed with him. I've heard you talk a lot about love and kind of, 
uh, the role that love can play in kind of healing wounds, but also that we kind of don't really know how to love. So yeah. I wonder, could you like talk about like, first of all, like why love is so important to, I suppose, heal a broken society and also how do we then learn how to love? When, when I say love and, you know, we, we, the third principle of the theory of enchantment is um, try to root everything you do in love and compassion. Mm. So when I say love, I do mean agape love, which is a Greek Christian term. Um, and Dr. King said agape love was what the civil rights leaders wanted to embody. And it was the ultimate aim and ideal of the civil rights community. Agape love loosely translated into the English means unconditional love i.e. love not based upon conditions, which is a very difficult thing to practice, but it is possible. Um, it is possible, but it is very hard just because of our nature to practice it. Um, the reason why this is important is if we don't adopt a spiritual practice of this kind of agape love, then what we'll do as a society is we'll just descend into this never ending cycle of conflict and vengeance. Uh, and that will just, bring everyone down. <laughs> um, and so for the sake of, I, I would say, like the survival of a community or of a nation, um, it is important to, to be able to practice this. The, another thing I want to say about this, you know, I, I get a lot of this from studying the civil rights movement and civil rights leaders. And a lot of people have to understand is that Dr. King taught that if you were a victim or a survivor of racism, you especially, and you particularly, were susceptible to falling into a spirit of vengeance and a spirit of self-righteousness. And this is a problem, right? Because if you fall into a spirit of vengeance, then you will become corrupted. And if you fall into a spirit of self-righteousness, then you'll begin to condescend to others and you'll begin to otherize others and you'll begin to see yourself as better than others. And then you actually fall into the same superiority mindset right. that was affecting and inflicting people who were persecuting you. So as a survivor, as, a, as someone who had been mistreated, it was especially important for you to practice this so that you would not become corrupted even in your you know, protests against people who were persecuting you. Sure. Um, and that, so that's one thing I'll say. The other important thing I'll say that's related to agape love is and James Baldwin wrote about this often, the, the civil rights, many of the civil rights leaders had an understanding or had a vocabulary about racists and about oppressors in general that were very different, that was very different from our current lexicon. Um, for starters, they did not see in no way, shape or form, did they ever see the oppressor as privileged. They would never use that kind of language. They actually saw the oppressor as suffering the president was suffering from a pathological obsession with race and the oppressor was taking the things that, you know, they didn't like about themselves and projecting it onto people who didn't look like them. Wow. Right. That was a kind of psychological suffering that would occur. And so the act of love of loving that person now note, I didn't say liking that person, but loving that person was a way to number one, acknowledge and recognize that that person is suffering and, to try to make sure that you don't do anything to cause more suffering or to inflict more suffering. Because if you do, it'll just inform and feed into this deadly cycle that human beings have been um, um, engaged in for a long time. 
That's really, really interesting. Um, I appreciate we've got about 10 minutes left. Okay. So we kind of always like wind down with just like some kind of stock fire questions, which we just always okay. plow through. I'm trying to condense my answers here. <laughs> oh, please, please take, take, uh, I, I love, I love these answers being superb so far. So I'd love to just ask, we always ask if you had one truth that you would love Ooh. to share with our audience from your life, from your work that you think could improve the lives of our listeners, what would it be? This is, you, you're like <laughs> giving me the most existential question. <laughs> like, I'm an existentialist guy. <laughs> I only have 10 minutes to, <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> you wait till you hear the last question. <laughs> you wait till you hear the last question. Um, I would say that sorrow is very difficult, but also a gift. What books <laughs> have impacted your life? What books? The True and Only Heaven, Progress and Its Critics by Christopher Lash, one of the most amazing books I've read. Also, The Master and His Emissary by mm. Ian McGilchrist um, has made me realize the convergence between the Enlightenment and critical race theory, actually, and how much they overlap in some ways. Um, also, I'm just looking at my shelf. Uh, Albert Murray, <laughs> The Omni-Americans, um, which I mentioned. Um, almost anything by Carl Jung, although I haven't read everything by Carl Jung, so I can't really endorse everything, but heavily influenced by Carl Jung. And finally, what's another good book? Uh, I think those are good. I think I'll leave it at that. <laughs> It was interesting because Robert Greene, he actually mentioned McGill Crick's book when he was oh, on the show. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, interesting. See, Great minds. We have that in common. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So my last question for you today before I ask you to sign off and tell these guys where they can connect with you and about your work is what makes a life worth living? Again, with these, <laughs> with these existential questions. Um. Uh, well, James Baldwin says that a life worth living is really defined by people who confront the, who have the courage to confront the reality of life, right? That we are born, mm. that we live and that one way, we, one day we will die. And so the capacity to fully accept that and to, to fully understand that one's life is one's burden to bear uh, and to bear that burden responsibly, which is to say without denying the reality of life uh, or without suppressing, you know, one's emotions, but rather trying to, to grasp and acknowledge the full complexity of what it means to be a human being, the sorrow and the joy, right, the tragedy and the miracle of life. Uh, and th again, this is a very difficult thing to do, because life is also full of terror. Yes. Um, I think, but I think that's what's what makes a, a life worth living. I love that answer. Chloe, where can these guys connect with you? Yes, you can find my work at theoryofenchantment.com. Theory of Enchantment is my company. We teach a um, positive, compassionate approach to anti-racism rooted in uh, Dr. King's idea of the beloved community. And um, uh, also you can follow us uh, on Instagram at Theory of Enchantment. On Twitter, you can follow me at C. Valdery. You can also follow us at Enchant Theory uh, on Twitter. And um, yeah, I will, I will see you on the internet. <laughs> this has been such a pleasure. I think you're doing really, really, really great work in the world. It's been such a pleasure for me. I'm going to link these guys to everything which we've discussed today. So Chloe, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me.